This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Christopher Lee about his book, Kwame Anthony Apia, published in 2021 in the Routledge Critical Thinking series. Dr. Lee is currently an associate professor of history and of, Afri- of African Studies at Lafayette um, College. Dr. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I wonder if we could start by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I Well, as you mentioned, I'm an associate professor of history uh, with a joint appointment in Africana Studies at Lafayette College in Eastern Pennsylvania. Um, <clears throat> I've uh, published a number of books. Um, this is my sixth book. And my main research interests are in uh, 20th century African history. In fact, I've I've done most of my work has been in Southern Africa um, and in South Africa. So uh, Anthony Appiah is sort of an outlier to that, and that's perhaps something we could talk about. Um, but I am interested in in intellectual history as well, um, histories of, of decolonization and uh, post-colonial histories and um, something that I do in my book is situate Anthony Appiah within those conversations. And then finally, I'm also very interested in um, issues of race and racial identity. And Appiah, of course, has spoken on those issues as well. So um, even though, even though uh, Appiah, you know, geographically speaking, doesn't fit into my specialization, um, my regional specialization, nonetheless, he has uh, intersected with with different themes and issues that I'm, I'm very interested in and that I've explored in other books. Um, and, you know, just to piggyback on what you were saying. Uh, sure. <clears throat> in deciding to write about um, Kwame Anthony Apia, um, I think what, what's, what's really interesting about the book, and I think we would like to hear a little bit about that, is just how, um, you know, how he came into your radar, you know, and, you know, how he, uh, he, he you know, not only is he some, someone, obviously, that, that, that speaks to issues that, that you have, uh, that you work with, but, um, but obviously offers a series of tools um, that are not unique to a particular part of Africa. So um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that process of making the decision of examining someone uh, who, as you said in your introduction, is not only still alive, um, but still producing quite, uh, you know, prolifically. Um, And, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's a scary thought, you know, to to write, especially for someone like you're a historian and, and it's always, easy to or easier to to talk about people who are not alive anymore so 
uh, if you can tell us just about the process of thinking about uh, why do you write this book? Why, why, why write this book? And why do you think that uh, you could write this book uh, as well as you did? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, there are a number of answers. I mean, one, one answer is that uh, I first read Anthony Appiah when I was in graduate school. Um, so this would have been during the 1990s. <clears throat> and in truth, I can't, you know, I don't, I don't have a specific memory uh, of, you know, hearing about him and then reading him. It's, it's, he was just sort of one of these figures who was, uh, to use an expression, part of the discourse of African studies during the, during the 1990s. And um, in fact, the, the copy of In My Father's House, which is, of course, the book I was, uh, which was the entry point for me um, in terms of understanding Apia as, as it was for so many other people, so many other scholars. Um, when I was working on this book, the, the copy of In My Father's House that I was using the whole time was the copy I had in graduate school. So in a way, it was very interesting for me to go back to my graduate school copy of In My Father's House and see what I had marked and see the notes I had taken on the margins and sort of revisit this text that um, I had encountered, you know, over 20 years ago. Um, and also, you know, it had a powerful effect on me. I And, you know, I certainly wasn't alone in that. I mean, it was a book that, um, as I suggested, was talked about, um, cited, it, had received the Herskovitz Prize. Um, it was very well received. I should say quickly too that when I was in graduate school, this is at, at Stanford University. Um, one of my <clears throat> professors there was was Vy v- Madimbe, um, the you know the author of the Invention of Africa and the Idea of Africa and so forth, and so another African philosopher. Um, in many ways, very different from Apia. I mean. Mudimbe is, you know, more closely tied to a continental tradition, um, whereas Apia, you know, being an Anglophone African intellectual is more tied to the analytic tradition of, of Britain. But nonetheless, both of them um, knew each other, and I knew that. Uh, and, um, you know, so certainly Mudimbe's respect and appreciation for Apia um, rubbed off on me. And, and so working with Madimbe was also, um, an entry point for thinking about Apia and thinking about African philosophy more generally. Um, I will say too, you know, it's, it's, you know, Apia is somebody certainly who I've, you know, sort of kept tabs on and I, you know, went on to buy his other books, the ethics of identity, cosmopolitanism, but at the same time, I, I will say that, you know, I moved on to other thinkers, of course, other books. Um, and as I, you know, started teaching and, and, and you know, publishing my own research, um, Apia wasn't necessarily in the foreground. I did, I did teach Apia, but, um, you know, in terms of my own writing and research, he wasn't, he wasn't really um, someone who figured largely, but that changed you know, over the past, I don't know, maybe let's say three to four years, I did, I did a book on, and I should say this is somewhat, somewhat of a, a long-winded answer to your question, but 
I mean, it, but it gets to the fact that, you know, it, it wasn't a book that I imagined doing, say, five years ago. But having said that, I did publish a book on, on Franz Fanon in 2015. And um, really that book was, in a sense, you know, a first engagement with thinking about African intellectual history, um, you know, thinking about individual uh, philosophers. And, um, you know, Fanon, again, is another figure who had a big impact on me. And, you know, I'm certainly not alone in that. Um, but thinking about Fanon too, I mean, one of the points that I made in that book is are the ways in which Fanon, you know, he's he's a reference point for sure, and sometimes too much of a reference point. That is to say that, um, you know, he's, you know, a lot of things get attached to him, and he can be overdetermined in a number of ways. And and in that book, I even said, you know, there there are points at which Fanon becomes kind of a cliche. Like Fanon explains any number of situations, and we sort of lose track of the historical Fanon. And so, moving to Apia, one of the questions that came out of, came out for me um, working on that book on Fanon was the fact that African intellectual history, of course, is wide ranging and diverse. But in terms of you know emphasis, I felt like many many scholars and much of our teaching focuses on this particular generation, this, you know, generation of, of revolutionaries, of, of intellectuals engaged in decolonization. So here I'm thinking of not only Fanon, but um, Cabral, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, chronologically later, but nonetheless part of the same, uh, part of the same group as, as a person like Steve Biko in South Africa. The upshot is that you know there's a lot of attention to activist intellectuals, and I think you know that's justified in many ways. But it it left open a question for me about what comes next, like what's wh- who are the intellectuals that come after decolonization, um, that you know grow up, are educated, um, experience an intellectual becoming within the context of a post colony. And it became clear to me that Anthony Appiah is a good example of that. I mean, his father, Joe Appiah, was active in the nationalist struggle, uh, was friends and, and later uh, an antagonist of, of Kwame Nkrumah. And Anthony Appiah being the son of this you know, nationalist leader, you know, it seemed like he, was, he would be an interesting example to, to explore you know, this next generation of, of African intellectuals. So something I do in my book is, is therefore position um, Apia, you know, not as, a, not as a successor to somebody like Fanon, even though Apia has written about Fanon, but more thinking about Apia as part of a generation that succeeded the generation of, of Kwame Nkrumah, of Franz Fanon, and so forth. And, and, and doing that, trying to you know, rethink how we understand um, African intellectual history from a generational standpoint, um, from the standpoint of, of the post-colony, after decolonization. And so, so those sets of questions really interested me. And then, of course, to go to your, your final or, or one of your final points, I mean, he, he's also still alive. Um, and, you know, there was something... That presented an interesting challenge for me too. Uh, you know, I'm a historian. 
essentially, you know, much of the, you know, many of the subjects I work with are, you know, subjects that, you know, were, were the direct participants, they're not alive anymore. And Appiah, you know, is alive. He's, you know, very productive. He's the ethicist for the New York Times magazine. Um, and so he's, he presented a challenge in that sense. And uh, so, yeah, it was just all these things that contributed to a number of incentives for me to, to, to engage with him. And um, yeah, perhaps we can unpack some of those responses, but that's, that's sort of an, an initial laundry list of reasons why I was attracted to this project. No. Uh, and like I said, I think um, you set that up very well in, um, in your introduction and as well as mm-hmm. what probably is like, uh, what probably was a, a more significant problem uh, which you talk about, which is how do you speak or try to define, you know, an intellectual who he himself has kind of made a career uh, kind of questioning uh, the usefulness or the nature of labels or, or in this case of the notion yeah. of identity. Um, and yeah. so maybe we can talk a little bit about that uh, and, and, you know, talk, especially in, in your first chapter, when you start talking about like the notion of African epistemologies and, where Appiah, particularly in, in My Father's House, starts to, starts to set out this sort of like, um, you know, project of uh, questioning um, identity, questioning what it means to be African, what it means to be an African philosopher, et cetera, et cetera. While at the same time, right. you're trying to sort of pretty much or try to understand him um, both as, a, like as you said, in, in this sort of tripartite way as part of... Uh, you know, a generation, but also as part of a, of an African tradition, et cetera, et cetera. So um, h- right. how did you try to negotiate that little mind, uh, landmine? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good question. I mean, I mean, one thing that, um, you know, I, I tried to do in the book is, is point to how, uh, you know, Anthony Appiah has evolved over time in terms of his thinking and in terms of the positions that he's, he's made. Um, in other words, I, I, and I say this in the introduction that, you know, I don't want to fall into the trap of, you know, categorizing him in a strict, uh, or fixed way. Um, I do think it's important to think about him as an African philosopher um, that's one thing I will, you know, in a sense, emphasize. I think that, um, I mean, and I should say quickly, you know, his, <clears throat> excuse me, his, his mother's British, his father's Ghanaian. So he grew up, uh, you know, biracial or multiracial. Um, he was born in London, grew up in Kumasi, you know, one of the largest cities in Ghana. He, he was educated in Britain, went to Cambridge University, um, and has spent most of his uh, career in the United States. So, you know, he has multiple geographies, multiple identities, and I'm, I'm reluctant to, you know, say he's one thing. But on the other hand, you know, in his writing, he constantly references Ghana and Kumasi, and, and obviously his book In My Father's House is very much an homage to his father and the impact that his father and by extension, um, uh, Ashanti culture and, and uh, Ghana, 
you know, head on his thinking and head on his own identity. So, you know, Apia is a, is a person who both embraces, you know, ident- different identities for different reasons, but on, you know, on other occasions is, is very elusive. And I, you know, I don't, you know, by extension, you know, I, you know, he's also not unusual in that regard. I mean, you know, something that I point out in the introduction of my book as well is, you know, some of the questions that Apia was was dealing with, um, raising, uh, and attempting to find answers for in his book in My Father's House, which came out in 1992. Um, these questions being, is it, you know, how do you, how can you be how can you be African and modern at once? How can you be traditional and modern at once? How can you be uh, Western educated and, and, you know, Ghanaian, you know, all these sorts of dualities. Um, you know, a, a lot of those questions to my mind presage the, the kind of questions that a number of novelists, uh, Anglophone novelists um, have addressed since, you know, 2000. And here, of course, I'm thinking of, you know, Writers like Chimamanda Adichie um, and Teju Cole, um, you know, a lot of African writers who've you know achieved mainstream popularity, and one of the reasons they've done that is is because they've you know engaged exactly with these questions of you know trying to redefine what it means to be African, um, the possibility of you know you know being cosmopolitan or Afropolitan. Um, and what the meaning of that is. Um, and I think Anthony Appiah basically, you know, identified some of these issues early on. It should be said, too, that, you know, of course, there are other African thinkers and writers who are also grappling with these issues um, in their novels, in, in their writings. And, and um, I think that, but I do think Appiah is an important figure for again, identifying these issues and trying to think them through. And I think it's, you know, this, this Afropolitan sensibility, um, and there's certainly critiques of it too, I sh- and this is something we could talk about later as well. I mean, Afropolitanism has been critiqued as, as being elitist, as being, you know, ver- you know a very small fraction of, of people considering, you know, the, the magnitude of, of, um, Africa more generally, you know, not many people get to live lives of, you know, being Ghanaian and living in New York city or studying at Oxford or Cambridge and, you know, going to Lagos for Christmas every year. Um, you know, things of this nature. I think, I think there is a kind of elitism with Afropolitanism, but nonetheless, I, you know, I think that Apia, you know, to his credit, you know, he's, he's, seeking to complicate how we think of African identity. Um, And in that sense, you know, moving to go back to one of my earlier points, moving away from the kind of Manichaean uh, framework and dynamic that undergirds so much of anti-colonial thought. That is to say, you're, you know, you're Algerian or you're French, um, you're Ghanaian or you're British you're African or you're European, you're black or you're white. And, you know, consciously and unconsciously, Apia was, you know, seeking to disrupt that, that Manichaean thinking. And um, I think that, you know, In My Father's House is very much a project about 
um, you know, deconstructing deconstructing those binary frameworks, whether it's along lines of race, culture, nativism, so on and so forth. So, um, so yeah, I feel like I've once again digressed from some of your larger questions, but but that um, you know, I think I think that Apia you know crystallized a number of things during the 1990s um, in terms of you know rethinking certain categories and rethinking certain identities like being African or like Pan-Africanism that have continued to affect scholarship up to the present. Um, having said that too, I think that, you know, in some ways Apia is, uh, has become out of step with certain kinds of politics, particularly with, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, and this kind of thing. But I will say that, you know, Apia, to his credit, you know, he's, he's, he's been someone who's, you know, seeking to strip away illusions, you know, s- seeking to find some kernel of truth. And that's the philosopher that he is. Um, and I, I think too, that in his early work, such as in my father's house, where he was in a sense, very strident about, you know, critiquing certain identities as being fictions in his more recent book, the, the lies that bind he's, he's changed a bit. He's said that, well, even though race is a fiction, um, a fiction in a scientific sense, that nonetheless, race does provide, um, you know, certain forms of community, certain kinds of identity that can be useful. So I think he has changed in different ways um, from his earlier work. And I try to track this over the course of my book. Um, you start, uh, you follow um, that early chapter on African epistemologies with two chapters, uh, mm-hmm. one on race and one on culture. As uh, basically, a stri- and, and you know this this area of the book is um, kind of called like key idea uh, as a way to try to introduce, I guess, readers into this uh, into like the, the the key ideas that that Apia has tried to explore or explain and analyze. Uh, uh, and these two ideas, race and culture, uh, you know, kind of as a way to try to deconstruct two big ones uh, in terms of this, the, the question is about identity, like where, if we're going to think about identity as like this empty jar that we can fill with a number of things, how have race or culture stacked up to that challenge of, of filling that jar? Um, what, what was interesting in these two chapters, it's, um, and I think it's, whomever picks up this book is going to find it incredibly useful in that regard. It's just also how much work you do in terms of tracing the ways in which these two ideas have been understood and, and analyzed uh, by other academics yeah. and then trying to place Apia within, um, within those sort of two traditions. Um, and I wonder if you can just give us a sense of, in, in your opinion, where where has Appia made significant contributions in terms of our understanding of these two concepts and how, or how does he see the, the usefulness or not usefulness of these two concepts as a means to try to understand, you know, social or cultural experience? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, I mean, uh, actually, let me, just as a, as a way of responding initially, let me sort of explain the structure of the book. I mean, the, 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 structure of the book, the, the chapters, and there, there's six, 
um, excluding the introduction and, and the, the conclusion, um, the six chapters focus on key ideas. So, you know, the first idea is African epistemology is sort of the, you know, how do we think of um, African philosophy or the possibilities of African philosophy? Um, you know, what kind of knowledge comes out of Africa? And, you know, of course, as a scholar of Africa, this is a very important question to me. Um, and that's followed, again, as you mentioned, by race and then culture. Chapter four is about liberalism. Um, chapter five is about cosmopolitanism. And then six is about moral revolutions. And the reason why I wanted to bring up, you know, the other chapters is because I think the, you know, one way of understanding Apia's approach to race and, and culture um, is to think about them in relation to his ideas of liberalism and, and cosmopolitanism. Um, so the first thing, so, so that's one way of framing it. And I think that um, as a liberal philosopher, um, Apia is very concerned with the individual. Um, he's very concerned with the, the freedom of the individual, the, the possibilities that the individual has to achieve his or her life plans, to, to use an expression of John Stuart Mill. And one of the things that, that, that can enable or restrict um, human freedom are ideas of race and ideas of culture. Um, clearly in our, you know, political presence and, you know, this really goes back, you know, for centuries in many cases, you know, race and culture have been key elements of identity, of modern identity. And so, you know, as a liberal philosopher and particularly a, you know, liberal philosopher who, you know, again, you know, was born in London, grew up in Kamasi, you know, went back to Britain for education you know, this question of identity makes perfect sense. It, you know, Apia is a person who had to confront this himself. And, you know, and by extension, he had to confront issues of, you know, cultural identity and racial identity. Um, and so I think that's, you know, one reason why, you know, race and culture are important to him. Um, certainly, these are also important issues, particularly during the 1990s, when, um, you know, Apia started, you know, producing the work like in my father's house that he has since become known for. And I think that, um, you know, just to provide some intellectual context too, I mean, you know, the, the 1980s and early 1990s, and I, I talk about this in my book, you know, this is a time of the cultural turn when a lot of academics were sort of revisiting questions of culture, um, being influenced by thinkers like uh, the anthropologist Clifford Geertz, um, the uh, cultural studies critic, uh, Stuart Hall. And so culture was very much a part of the mix uh, and no doubt continues to be. But, you know, the cultural turn of the 80s, um, I think, certainly prompted Apia to think about culture and engage with that discourse. Um, of course, the discourse on race was, you know, also very important at that time. And one of Apia's closest colleagues to this day is Henry Louis Gates, um, you know, the Harvard literature professor who heads the, the Hutchins Center and the Du Bois Institute at Harvard. Um, and, you know, you know this, the 1980s was very much a period where, you know, figures like Gates, uh, Cornell West, um, and Apia, you know, were challenging, you know, what was 
canonical thinking. You know, how can the African American experience, how can the Black experience, um, be part of um, the common uh, curriculum, part of the common human experience? And so, race is very much a part of that 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 time as well. And um, you know, one thing I'll say about so. So that's, you know, context and backdrop and, you know, the, the kind of discourse that existed and that, that Apia was intervening on. Um, I will say, too, that, you know, going to the specifics about what I write in both of those chapters, um, you know, the thing about race for Apia, at least in his early work, um, he was very much about, you know, deconstructing it, saying that, that race is false. It's, it's, um, it's a misleading identity. And he took it to a great extent. I mean, basically, he um, was not only, you know, positioning himself against uh, anti-Black racism by whites, um, you know, positioning himself against, you know, the use of of race and racism against minorities, um, but he was also positioning himself against uh, Pan-Africanists. Who were using race? Who were using blackness as a means of solidarity? And I think that was the controversial part. That basically Apia did not um, concede or did not um, think about how you know racial identity could be a galvanizing force for minority communities. And so you know people who had embraced black power, who, in the case of South Africa, embraced black consciousness, um, and, you know, people who had studied and, and, um, and had engaged with the, with the Pan-African tradition, for Apia to intervene in the way that he did, I think it upset a lot of people. Um, and that's not my opinion alone. There were a lot of critics who came out and said that Apia was taking a too narrow view of race. And, and what is meant by that is that Apia said race doesn't exist. Race is an illusion because there's no scientific basis for it. Ergo, race is a false identity. And one of the key targets of of Apia's critique at that time was Du Bois and how Du Bois, basically Apia frames Du Bois as a person who was against racism but couldn't find a way out of it, couldn't find a way out of race thinking. And, you know, basically a lot of people pointed out that, you know, this is a misunderstanding uh, of, of Du Bois and his approach, that basically Du Bois didn't think about race as purely a scientific or pseudoscientific category, but saw race as socio-historical. That is to say that blackness isn't, you know, isn't a category by descent. Um, but it's some it's it's a historical formation it's a social formation and you know in this regard i think that you know there really was a good counter critique to apia's argument um and i should say quickly too the you know the the particular piece that that apia you know has this discussion has this argument against race has this argument against du bois is is titled the illusions of race and that rankled a lot of people um, you have people uh, like Lucius Outlaw, um, like uh, Lewis Gordon, you know, sort of coming out and saying that, well, 
you know, it's not that easy to, you know, dismiss race or dismiss racism, that racism is systemic, that, um, you know, it's, it's much more entrenched. It's, it's, um, you can't simply have an analytic philosophical argument against race and boom, it's gone. Um, that, you know, akin to Du Bois, um, race is a socio-historical formation that, um, you know, is, is uh, deeply ingrained not only in, in society, but, you know, in the lives of, of Black Americans, uh, of um, Black communities around the world. And so, you know, there definitely was a pushback. Um, and it is important to note that, you know, Apia has since then, you know, softened his position. Um, he has a book on Du Bois based on a series of lectures that he gave uh, at Harvard, uh, a book called Lines of Descent, which is in a sense much more conciliatory towards Du Bois and, you know, really understanding the kind of challenges that Du Bois faced um, during the late 19th and, and early 20th century with regards to race that, you know, in fact, um, Du Bois was not a tragic figure who was sort of caught up in, uh, you know, the, the discourse of his time and couldn't find a way out, but rather Du Bois was actively, you know, reinventing the discourse, saying that race isn't about science, it's about history and, and sociology. It's about how, you know, histories of enslavement, histories of anti-Black violence, um, histories of, of Black struggle and black study have contributed to um, a black identity. And we need to understand that we need to appreciate that history. Um, and so the goal isn't to get rid of race or to get rid of, let alone get rid of black identity, but rather to embrace it and understand its uh, multiple dimensions and, and historical genealogies. And, and um, in his more recent work, Apia has come to, to think about that and, and, and embrace that. Um, going to culture very quickly, um, as you can tell, I could talk about, you know, a number of these things at length, but to go to, you know, go to culture quickly. I mean, I think the main, the main thing for, for Apia here is well, actually there's several things. One thing is that, you know, culture has often been positioned against race as, you know, as a way of, of working around race. That is to say, if, if African Americans were not to be, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of uh, rehashing or or paraphrasing Apia's thinking, but but also the thinking of other people, if if African American identity is not to be based on race, um, it could be based on culture, and in other words, culture um, provided a way of understanding community formation. Um, identity um, and and community struggle that wasn't anchored in race. Um, and another person who you know thought this um, is, and I should say quickly, you know, you know, through a different framework is is the anthropologist Franz Boas, who as an anthropologist is very interested in culture, but um, was also very critical of of understandings of race difference. And um, anyway, he's another influence on Apia. But, I, but, but by extension, you know, something that even though Apia 
like many others, finds culture as a way of of um, negotiating race, of of displacing race. Apia is also very wary of um, of you know uh, notions of cultural purity, notions of cultural authenticity, um, cultural homogeneity. And so when it comes to culture, you know, Apia has also deconstructed it and basically saying that, you know, um, you know, we have to understand culture as dynamic, as changing, as, um, as defined by contamination, which is a term that he, he invokes in his later book, Cosmopolitanism. And, you know, the, the thing here is, again, in a sense, it goes back to Kamasi, it goes back to Ghana, where, you know, Apia makes the point that you know, well, first of all, there's no monolithic African culture. Um, but second of all, there's no monolithic Ghanaian culture. Um, that we have to understand these places as, you know, defined by a rich array of, of cultural identities. And, and even if, um, you know, even if such as himself, even if you are, um, you know, you do have a Shanti heritage. I mean, you might be born in London. You might be educated in Cambridge. You might, um, you know, uh, you know, live in New York City. Um, all these things. You know, we can't use cultural identity in such a way that it, you know, predetermines or, or, or you know, determines at all the the outlook or beliefs or practices of a person. And so. Um, Culture is is different from race, of course, but you know Apia also tackles it as one of these um, approaches for identifying people, and you know basically saying it too can be a blunt instrument that you know people have multiple cultural identities, not a single one. Um, in in uh, you were right in 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 identifying one of the uh, sort of like the the key ideas in Apia is that the place where we try to understand or we try to understand what the goals or what the limitations of any of this concept might be is in the individual. Uh, and of course right. that, that is part of what you, what, one, one of the reasons why you identify him as basically a, a, a liberal philosopher. So can right. we move that as, you know, as you explore those two ideas, then you, you follow that uh, with a chapter on liberalism and, and the place that Apia occupies in there. Um, uh, you know how it's not a surprise. I mean, he has he himself has spoken about you know uh, how he engages with those ideas. Uh, but it's, what's interesting right. about him again is that he's not both as an African philosopher and you know as someone that that has engaged with questions of identity. He is right. not just um, he's trying to build into that tradition some. Um, some new questions. And um, so what are those new questions and how is he answering them? Well, it, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, so just to, to make a distinction between his books. Um, so In My Father's House, which came out in 1992, um, is very much a, a statement about, um, you know, what, again, African identity um, what does it mean to, you know, be African in, in the world? Um, you know, what is it, you know, it, it, it's him. So, and again, keep in mind that I should say quickly too, that he did publish 
um, before he, he did publish before um, he came out with In My Father's House. And, um, but really, In My Father's House is the book that you know, established him as a public intellectual, established him as an African philosopher. His earlier work was very much about, you know, analytic philosophy and, and very academic. And I should say quickly, too, that I don't, I mention it in my book, but I don't really get into it. Um, I really, for me, the starting point is, is in my father's house. So if in my father's house is very much about, you know, these questions of Africa, questions of African philosophy, knowledge of Africa, and so forth, um, his book, uh, The Ethics of Identity, which came out um, in 2005, um, that book is very much about, you know, liberalism and the, the varieties of liberalism and why Apia is a liberal philosopher. So, you know, in a sense, it's another flag that he's planting. Um, and in fact, I, I make mention in, in my book, I think, you know, it's, in the same way that in my father's house is, is you know, very wide ranging, um, you know, it goes in different directions, has many different ideas and, and reference points. You could make the same case for the ethics of identity, that it's also a book that is about the many varieties of liberalism. And it has a similar kind of capaciousness that, that, um, that in my father's house has, and and in many ways the ethics of identity is is um, you know it, it there's a kind of textbook quality to it. I mean, Apia is is very much a teacher in the book. He's very much you know guiding the reader through different aspects of liberalism, um, and you know explaining them. Um, on the other hand, you know it's also a personal book. You know he's sort of searching through liberal thought. You know making arguments and cases for certain dimensions and, and explaining why liberal philosophy appeals to him. And so, you know, I think that, that as, a, as I, you know, touched upon my previous answer, I mean, one of the, one of the main things that appeals to, to Apia about uh, liberalism is, again, it's about the individual. It's about the individual making their way in the world, uh, not being um, beholden to um, particular communities, uh, particular states, uh, particular politics. Um, liberalism is very much about, you know, individual freedom and pursuing, um, you know, pursuing our own life plan and living a kind of truth through that. And again, for somebody like Apia, who's, you know, multiracial, multicultural, uh, who's experienced all these different, you know, you know, societies and geographies? Um, it makes sense that you know liberalism would have uh, a certain appeal to him. That he, you know, it 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 justifies or rationalizes, gives him reason to to be the com- the complex person that he is. Um, I will say quickly too, though, that you know, liberalism as a philosophy has a fraught history. And what I mean by that is if we think of somebody like John Stuart Mill, who is an important figure for Apia, and Apia, you know, readily says this. I mean, John Stuart Mill, you know, worked for the British East India Company. He was very much uh, a promoter and believer of British empire, um, British imperialism, 
Um, British imperialism as a way of improving the world. Um, you know, Mill believed that British imperialism could introduce liberal values to the to colonized peoples. And so there's a certain complexity here with regards to Apia then. Um, certainly, this is another reason why Apia has critics that, you know, how could Apia, this post-colonial intellectual, uh, embrace this British thinker who, in many ways, was an imperial apologist. And I think, you know, Apia touches upon this, and he touches upon it at different points in his work, and he he does it delicately. I mean, he, in effect, Apia says he's not a historian. He's a philosopher. And he'll take useful ideas where he finds them. Um, that may or may not be adequate for some readers, but, you know, that's one answer he's provided. Um, another way of thinking about Apia and the liberal tradition, and this is something that I'm more sympathetic to, is that, you know, the liberal tradition goes on. Um, Apia is basically, you know, redefining the, redefining liberalism for the present. And, you know, I think, you know, we can't simply, you know, condemn people in the present to, you know, what happened in the past. I mean, I'm certainly critical of John Stuart Mill um, and his beliefs on colonialism. But, you know, I, I, I do think the, the liberal tradition has things to offer and things to think about. And it's important to engage with that. And, and let me just say one other thing. Um, I think, and this in fact goes back to an original point that I made, that I think, you know, within African studies, within African intellectual history, um, you know, there is a strong tradition of, say, African socialism, African Marxism. And this is something I've written about myself and my other scholarship, and it's, it's something I'm very interested in. Um, but I do think, you know, we have to think about, you know, African liberalism. You know, what, you know, what thinkers are engaging with that tradition? And um, I do think the liberalism of Apia, in many ways, is a response to the kind of Marxist, Leninist ideas of a person like Kwame Nkrumah. Um, I do think that the experiences of prison, of, of, of prison that his father, Joe Apia, experienced, and in effect, the denial of rights, the denial of freedom that his father experienced, also informed Apia's you know, strong belief in individual freedom, individual rights, and so forth. So, you know, I, I think they're, they're good ways of connecting Apia and sort of, you know, thinking about his liberalism in new ways. Um, I think also it's, it's, it's um, something that, like you said, in, in uh, Apia pretty much uh, is a philosopher and his, his way of thinking and his way of writing um, comes uh, from his philosophical training. Uh, but but right. more narrowly, he's also an ethicist and and someone who's right. kind of trying to find um, very sort of practical ways of thinking about uh, yeah. how to live, you know, how to live a good life, you know. Yeah. I mean, which is just like the ultimate ethical question, um, and sort of that sort of. Uh, Ties uh, and in a way, the, the find the, the fact that he finds 
those um, some of those answers um, in in sort of the liberal tradition is is one thing. Uh, I think what's interesting is how he, like you said, he builds upon that and he speaks to that, uh, maybe not as critically as um, you know. I think I think that there's like like a really interesting divide between asking that question at an individual level, you know, you as an individual asking yourself, how should I live my life? And, but then asking that question at a more sort of like, you know, what was, what were the, the, like the, the moral faults of colonialism or something like that? That's, there seems to be like a a different sort of step, Uh, not that he shouldn't be asked to do it, you know, but, but, but it is an an, an interesting, precisely because he's an ethicist, it seems to be like an interesting question not to address more openly. Um, Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, 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 I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. But anyway, I just wanted to sort of tie it on to, to the next couple of chapters, you know, when he more specifically, you specifically more talk about the, the notion of cosmopolitanism, where he uh, where he basically makes uh, a more pointed uh, argument to a specific way of living, you know, and you know, and he ties in uh, things, uh, you know, his his questions about identity, uh, his ideas about uh, or his his ideas about how to live and how how to live in a world that uh, in which most of us don't have simple. Uh, discrete identities, yeah. um, and uh, and lastly, in in your last chapter, just how uh, how that may may or may not uh, help in in changes. And again, here is probably interesting also to point out something that you uh, uh, remind us a lot throughout the book. You know how for Appia, ethics it's more important than politics, or comes first, uh, comes before politics. And I think in these last two chapters, it's, it's interesting to see him uh, trying to make those arguments. You know, it's like before we, we go into politics to think how to improve the world, we need to think about how to improve our personal lives, et cetera. Right. I mean, just to build on that last point, um, I do think it's, as you suggested, there's, there's several points in the book where I say ethics, I, I sort of coined this um, phrase that I use more than once in the book is a matter of emphasis, which is to say, you know, for Appia, ethics precedes politics. Um, and I think, you know, and I should say quickly, too, that I think at times that's frustrated um, other people. That is to say that Appia um, hasn't taken certain political stances when um, other people might have or or hope that he would have. Um, and, but, you know, I, I mean, it goes back to your larger question about, you know, this, this issue of ethics and moral philosophy and how Appiah's main concern is, you know, how do we not just express individual freedom, um, not just, you know, pursue our identities, but how do we do this in a way that, you know, brings about a greater good? And, um, you know, brings about a more, you know, general or societal happiness. Um, and I think this is really important to understand. I mean, I, I think that, um, of course, there, there are versions of liberalism that are just about the individual. 
Um, and, you know, this goes back to, you know, the idea of, of utilitarianism. That is to say that the purpose of life is just to maximize happiness and individual happiness. And um, even though there's, you know, part of Apia that I think is sympathetic to that, I think there, you know, certainly other parts of his of his work that suggests that, you know, personal happiness is tied to societal happiness, that you can't simply, you know, pursue your own interests and, and call that an ethical life. Um, but yeah, I mean, to go to, to go to cosmopolitanism and then moral revolutions, um, I will say, and, you know, this also goes back to liberalism and the ethics of identity. Um, I mean, these are, you know, these are three, discussions, liberalism, cosmopolitanism, and, and moral revolutions. These are three discussions that, you know, in a sense, mark his move away from African issues. You know, he's, and I don't think he, as I mentioned at the start, he, he's not, he doesn't ever, you know, completely abandon um, his engagement with, with Ghana or Africa more generally. But certainly his more recent work has, has sought to speak to larger issues and larger audiences. Um, and specific to cosmopolitanism, I think, you know, it's, a, it's an idea that is connected to the liberal tradition. Um, another contemporary philosopher who, contemporary liberal philosopher who's also engaged with cosmopolitanism who I talk about in my book is Martha Nussbaum. And, you know, in both cases, both Appiah and Nussbaum, I mean, they're both liberal philosophers who are, you know, basically using cosmopolitanism as a way to, in a sense, scale up liberal thinking. And what I mean by that is that liberal thought, you know, ideas of the individual um, the freedom of the individual is basically about, um, you know, is, is done in association with a state, whether that state is, you know, the government of a nation state or, you know, uh, you know, the metropole of an empire. And what cosmopolitanism does is sort of break out of that, um, Cosmopolitanism, and I should say quickly, you know, isn't about just jet setting. Um, it's not about, you know, fashion as we have with, you know, Cosmopolitan magazine, but it's very much about, you know, this, this stoic philosophy, um, you know, started by Diogenes the Cynic, which, you know, who basically he was, you know, this stoic philosopher who declared, I'm a citizen of the cosmos. I'm a citizen of the world. And so it's a concept of citizenship that's not tied to the nation state. It's not tied to a small community, but it's tied to the world. It's tied to something much larger. And so the question then becomes, well, what are our responsibilities in that situation? What are the responsibilities of the citizen of the world? To whom do we owe our attention, um, our labors, um, our, our um, moral guidance, our, you know, where do we direct our ethics in that kind of situation? And 
you know, clearly this speaks to our global moment. Um, and Apia, you know, being the ambitious philosopher that he is, is using cosmopolitanism as a way of thinking about how do we engage ethically with our global present. I should say as well that, you know, for me, and I talk about this in the book, given the fact that Apia has been critical of pan-Africanism, I sort of see cosmopolitanism as his, as in a sense, his quote-unquote pan-Africanism. That is to say that, you know, Apia uses cosmopolitanism in the same way that black thinkers use pan-Africanism. Black thinkers use pan-Africanism and, you know, whether it's Du Bois or, or Marcus Garvey, you know, used various forms of pan-Africanism to create a broader community, to create a broader global community. And Apia uses cosmopolitanism in the same way. Cosmopolitanism is a way of, you know, thinking about the world, you know, thinking about a global community. But of course, you know, without, you know, the kind of race-based thinking that Pan-Africanism does. So, you know, I think that, that in this regard, we have to, you know, think about cosmopolitanism, again, as not just, you know, being in, the, being in a global present, you know, it's not just about, you know, living in New York and having family in, in Lagos or Accra. It's not about, you know, traveling or being, you know, highly literate and multilingual. It's about ethics. It's about, you know, how do we ethically live in the world? And, you know, just one quick reference point. Um, another key thinker in, in cosmopolitanism is, is Adam Smith, um, the Adam Smith of the Wealth of Nations, <laughs> the 18th century philosopher. And, you know, basically his lesser known, at least among popular audiences, his lesser known work, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is basically a book of, of, of moral philosophy, not economics. And Adam Smith basically asks, you know, what are our responsibilities um, to people across the world if an earthquake happens in China that kills thousands of people? What sort of feeling or sense of responsibility should we have? Um, should we have a greater sense of attachment to the people near us who we see on an everyday basis? Or should we have equal an equal sense of duty and attachment to people across the world who we don't know, who we don't share a same, who we don't share a common language, who uh, in, in some ways we might never meet, should we send money to them? And, you know, it's this basic question because they too are human beings. Um, you know, does this suggest, does, geograph does geography, does geographic distance suggest a kind of inequality within humanity? And, you know, this is the basic question that, that Adam Smith is raising. And it's a question that Apia re-engages with. Um, should we care about people in other parts of the world the same way that we care about our own family. And, you know, Apia's answer to that question is, um, is in a sense, a practical one. Um, we should at a certain level care about both, but, you know, there are good reasons for caring about the people around us in a more direct way. Um, that is to say, we shouldn't completely sacrifice ourselves, you know, donate all our money to people we don't know. And, 
you know, there's some people who may critique Appiah on this, that, you know, maybe it's it's a bit conservative on his part or not radical enough. But nonetheless, you know, these are the sorts of questions that Appiah raises in his book, Cosmopolitanism. I haven't gotten to moral revolutions yet, but I think I should stop. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, well, I mean, I, and to some extent, moral revolutions, it's, it's, I mean, it continues that debate, isn't it? To some, like just basically trying to find yeah. questions of honor, questions of like, if we're going to be in this non-state uh, world where there should be certain, you know, mechanisms or ideas or moral codes that can... Um, help us understand how, how much to care and what to care about. Uh, what are those, you know, and how do we engage, yeah. how do we affect those change? How do we put them in place? And, and again, he's deconstructing right. those notions of honor and, you know, shame, responsibility, et cetera, et cetera, um, to, 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 to investigate to what extent they're, they're, they are good or not good guides um, to, to changes in our moral codes. Yeah. Well, just, I mean, just to talk about that book very quickly, I think, you know, um, it should be said the title of the book is The Honor Code. And, but the book is about, you know, this concept of moral revolutions. And I, I think the, I think there's several important things about that book. I mean, I, I think one thing is that Apia is pointing, is pointing to how living ethically can lead to larger change. And in a sense, I think he's responding to critics who are saying Appiah is too apolitical, that he's too much the philosopher, too much the ethicist, and not, and not enough an activist. And Appiah is basically saying, well, you know, living honorably, living ethically can contribute to broader social change, hence this idea of moral revolutions. And I should say that... Um, so, I mean, what's useful here is that, you know, when we think of the concept of revolution, we think about, you know, the overthrow of governments, um, you know, the complete transformation of states, um, you know, the upending of economies, um, you know, these dramatic changes that result in, um, you know, a kind of epical um, change and difference. You know, this is how we think of revolution, often violent um, you know, there's a human cost and so forth. Moral revolutions are different. You know, they're about changing changes in perception, changes in practices, um, changes in the way people see the world and how they see the world from an ethical standpoint. And so in this book, he talks about, um, well, the first example is the end of dueling. That is, you know, two men, you know, resolving a dispute by, you know, shooting one another. Um, the end of dueling in, in England during the, during the early 19th century. He talks about the end of foot binding in China, uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, he talks about the ending of the slave trade. Um, and he talks about honor killings um, in different parts of, of Central Asia. Um, he focuses particularly on, on Pakistan and in all these cases, I mean, you have, you know, some kind of violence, you know, whether it's, you know, shooting another man or, or, 
or um, in the case of honor killings, you know, killing a woman, um, or in the case of, I mean, clearly the violence of the transatlantic slave trade, or the violence of, of binding the feet of, of Chinese girls and women, um, the ways in which that violence isn't, at least for Apia, isn't ended through other violence, but instead ended through some kind of change in moral perception. So, um, but as in the case of honor killings in Central Asia, that change hasn't completely happened. He talks about it as being very much a present, presentist issue. Um, but just to say that, you know, I think the important thing here is that, that Apia talks about how certain honor worlds, that is say, you know, the world of, you know, dueling among, you know, British elites um, came to an end because that honor world was seen as, as, you know, immoral. Or we could say the honor world, um, the idea of binding uh, the feet of girls and women as a way of protecting their, their chastity, as a way of, um, you know, you know, as a way of purifying them, that notion of honor as being ultimately seen as, as wrong, um, being again, the end of another honor world, so on and so forth. The point being that, um, social change, societal change can come through certain kind of moral pressures. This is the argument that Apia makes. So it's a case for moral philosophy, bringing about broader social change. Um, I will say I do have critiques of this approach as well. I'm, I'm not. I'm, you know, it, it raises questions for me. Um, but yeah, that's something I talk about in the book. But nonetheless, I think the concept of a moral revolution is a, is an interesting one to think with. No, uh, and you know, I mean, I think in a way, it's not a, like you said, it's 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 a, a one to be expected response uh, from someone who um, obviously cares so deeply about this this notion of um, changing um, ideas about how to behave and how to uh, how to be a better person or and how that connects to becoming a better society too um, now I just have one last question <laughs> you know in general about the book um, sure one thing that is really striking um, about Apia's writing um, like you said is that in a way, he's he's a philosopher. He's trying to engage in philosophical questions, um, in but the the kinds of tools that he gives other social scientists, um, his analysis of uh, you know of history or his uh, the way in his some of the concepts, uh, his understanding of identity, his understanding of cosmopolitanism, can uh, be useful tools uh, uh, for other academics, if not necessarily to, I mean, I, I even think that probably even activists, but um, how do you see that? How do you see his, not necessarily his just academic contributions of, of his analysis, mm -hmm. but uh, in terms of like looking at his concepts or his ideas as, as tools of analysis, um, um, what are your conclusions with that regard? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I, I think that, um, I think one way of answering that, I mean, I, 
in truth, doing this project, I've I've taken away different things. Um, certainly, it's a project that you know I've I've gained a lot from, and in, in terms of you know immersing myself in the the writing and thinking of a particular person, and um, I have different projects that I'm you know sort of contemplating and and thinking about um, as an outcome of this book, and I sort of knew that in advance too that. You know, I wanted to use this book as a way, as an excuse in some ways to 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 get more deeply into Apia and and use that as a stepping stone to something else. Um, but I think that you know, to 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 go to your the the way I'm taking your question at the moment, which is to say not just about academic projects, but actually living in the world. Um, you know, I think the thing that I appreciate about Apia is is his, you know, is a sense of skepticism, you know, the kind of critical stance he has towards certain identities and, or identity more generally, and just sort of, you know, the need to constantly interrogate um, identities for their inconsistencies, um, to understand that identity, especially single identities, don't predetermine the person. Whether those identities are identities of race, class, gender, country, religion, um, you know, we have to, you know, constantly, in a sense, push back or, um, you know, learn how to define ourselves and embrace the specificity of ourselves against identities that would have us, you know, be singular beings, whether black or white, you know, Republican or Democrat, American or South African, you know, whatever it might be. I think that, you know, Apia has given us tools, ways of thinking about, uh, ways of being multiple um, you know, having multiple identities at the same time. And, you know, the position that he's sort of arrived at, and this is in particular with the lives that bind, you know, and this is how, in a sense, I conclude the book, you know, sort of thinking about how, yes, identities are fictions um, in many cases. You know, race, you know, there's no scientific basis for race or um, you know, things of that nature. But nonetheless, you know, these identities do shape our lives. They do impact our lives, which is to say that fiction, you know, impacts how we live. You know, fiction is, is something, you know, whether in the form of identity, whether in the form whether in the way we imagine the present or the past or the future, um, we often live in such a way that we're constantly pushing back reality. And I know that might sound like an odd thing because, you know, we might sit in a room or be on a street or be in a classroom or, you know, be in any number of contexts and, and be like, yeah, we're in the world. But I, I think that what Apia is saying is that while that may be true, um, we might not be confronting certain things. We might, um, you know, 
be placing ourselves behind a kind of veil um, to invoke Du Bois um, as a way of, of managing the world, that we embrace certain fictional identities or fictional I- I- ideas about the present as a way to protect ourselves, as a way to manage the complexity of the world. And I find that very interesting. I find it, I mean, in fact, it's, it's something that, um, it's something I continue to, to sort of ponder how maybe the goal of life as, as Apia has understood it isn't to strip away the illusions, but rather to understand how we use illusions, illusions of identity, illusions of the world to make our way in the world. And it's not to say that we should, you know, live in some sort of fantasy world um, just to satisfy ourselves. I mean, I think there are hard truths that we should engage with, but, but I think what, what Apia has been asking and, and sort of, you know, demanding that we think about is again, this, this sort of um, relationship between fact and fiction and how this relationship of fact and fiction impacts our lives and how we have to constantly negotiate that. And we have to bring, and one way of negotiating that, that difference of fact and fiction is through ethics. You know, does knowing the truth enable us to live an ethical life? Does, you know, engaging in a kind of fiction enable us to live an ethical life? I think these are interesting questions. They are indeed. Oh, okay. <laughs> you left me thinking there. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think I've taken a lot of your time now. Um, if you want to tell us uh, just briefly what you're working on or what now that you've finished this project, sure. what's, what's occupying you? Well, I mean, in truth, <laughs> I mean, and this is a total shift in gears. Um, I mean, I one thing, I, what, the book that I'm working on right now that, that actually I'm finishing, it should be out um, early this fall, like September or October, is a collection of writings by this writer named Alex Laguma, a South African writer and activist. Um, he's very different. One reason I laugh, he's very different from Apia in the sense that um, he was a member of the Communist Party of South Africa, um, very much a you know Marxist thinker, so intellectually very different from Apia. However, I will say they they do have similarities insofar that um, the particular book that I'm working on is is a collection of exile writings that Laguma wrote between 1966 when he left South Africa for exile. And 1985, when he died from a heart attack in Havana, Cuba. And the upshot is that Laguma, you know, spent close to two decades in exile. And he wrote a lot. Um, the book is, is, it's big. It's, the publisher estimates it'll be over 600 pages long. And I think even though intellectually both Apia and Laguma are different, they nonetheless were confronting similar sets of questions, you know, how to live in the world, you know, how to, to find a home in the world. And, you know, 
clearly the politics of Laguma are much more direct and, you know, he was fighting against, you know, the white minority rule of the apartheid regime. And, you know, the politics of, of Apia are very clear. Um, he wasn't a philosopher in the, the sense that Apia was. But, but again, I, I think what attracts me to both of these figures are the ways in which they, they were confronting the questions of their time. And um, they both you know, fall into the frame of, of African intellectual history and you know attempts to you know negotiate the world that they confronted and you know questions of identity questions of belonging questions of injustice and questions of home wow excellent so so very quickly we will probably have you back yeah we can talk <laughs> about this in another interview well thank you so much um that sounds uh, thank you very much for your yeah. time and for sharing with us, not just the book. I mean, uh, you very quickly mentioned in the introduction that you hope this book will be helpful for, you know, other people trying to engage with ideas of Apia. And I can strongly say that it will. And I mean, it is very, very, very thorough. Thank you. And, um, and I think it will be incredibly useful for anyone trying to uh, understand um the work of this uh, fantastic philosopher. So thank you very much. Thank you. And um, I hope to have you soon and talk to you soon. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much.